So off we are and running. November the 19th, 2017, lecture discussion number two on the book of Joel. And truthfully, this is lecture number three. However, I am labeling it lecture number two because lecture number one, the actual lecture number one, is an audio-only introductory emergency presentation to allow Supper Dave to record Romans number 300 for MeTube or the vast tube face or whatever it is, the vast Internet audience. And Dave has succumbed, as you know, to the inevitable accumulative effects of the consequences of his own making. And that, of course, assumes that Supper Dave possesses true existence. Uh, Those on the Internet, if you haven't been here forever or for a while, the people on the Internet do not believe that Supper Dave exists. They believe that I have manufactured him as a device. So I want to know all the time if he really truly exists. And true existence is a redundancy, so don't write me. Anyway, it turns out, due to our usual poor planning, that Joel number one, where we, uh, this is lecture, or Joel lecture number one also is on me too. We didn't expect it to be because it was an audio only without the board, has no video accompaniment, and that has caused our numbering now to be askance and nothing new there. But I felt I felt it best to point out for the Internet audience that lecture number two is not lecture number two, though it is because I have identified it as such. And that's all that matters in our current societal uh, structure, right? Identification has supplanted all things, science and mathematics. Mathematics has surrendered. Okay, so that's out of the way. That's the homekeeping or the housekeeping. Where are we now? That's the official cliffside question. Where have we been? That's the confederate to the official cliffside question. And so to continue today's emphasis on accuracy, the answer to both canonical ponderings for today is that no one of us knows. We are completely lost, probably lost, though it will be temporary, I hope. And who shall we blame? Well, I have the dry erase marker, so it's me. And I was tired last week, and more so than usual, and so I had a, a challenge getting everything put in place with regard to this lecture. It's very complicated, as you're coming to find out. And uh, so let's back up a little bit and reaccumulate the known knowns and then proceed from there. Okay. Uh, first, I can't erase this yet. First, Joel chapter 2 is Revelation 7 through 11. They have immediacy. They're derived from a singular source. Revelation 7.11 provides overwhelming insight into Joel 2, as does Joel 2 for Revelation 7-11. And beginning with this understanding prevents mostly, and it's always, there's always an exception, but if you know that when you're studying Revelation 7.11, you are in Joel 2, if you have that in the forefront, uh, that will prevent racing or conceiving an interpretive error. And uh, racing to or conceiving interpretive errors. And, and that should always be our focus, right? We should try our best not to blunder our way through Scripture. Unfortunately, as you know, we live in the Laodicean era, era of the church age. This is Revelation 3.16. That's where we are. Doctrinal error in this age of Laodicea is not only encountered, uh, it has, it is prevailing. It is assimilated. Doctrinal error has come into the church and is now indistinguishable. It is part of the church of today. It's promoted and it's also preferred. I can barely speak today. That is just the condition that we live in, and it is supposed to be the condition that we live in. And I would rant about it, or I could rant, it would be so easy, and I'll resist, except to reaffirm this last part, that doctrinal error in the contemporary church is the preferred doctrine. The more error, the better. That's what we deal with every day, those of us who are in this environment. Doctrinal error is embraced, and 
It is wanted and sought by the contemporary church of our time, which is this time, which is 2017. So you should expect it. You should expect it everywhere you go. And always be suspicious. The reasonings are obvious. Uh, as you know, I taught high school in Christian schools and in the, uh, in the secular school, public school. And my goal was to try to prepare those young men and women as best I could for what was coming for them. I know what is coming in the academic world or academic world. I know what the academes think of us and what they think of our children. So you have a responsibility, parents, grandparents, to prepare your children. Especially you have to be prepared for it so that you can prepare the children that you have in your families. There is an inevitability of the prevalence of the Laodiceans. That is scripture. That's what he says will happen. So, know it. Understand that. Prepare for it. The Laodiceans love to do one thing. They love to erase the truths of Jesus Christ. They are relentless in their desire to remove, to eradicate the name of Christ. Let me put that as boldly as I can. They want to get rid of the name of Jesus Christ. And they do. It's one of their consistencies. I take the time to monitor these churches, call it a habit. Habby? A hobby. Habit. That was, a habby is a combination of hobby and habit. Not habit and hobbit, in case some of you were wondering. It'll <sighs> be a long day. Good thing we have no visitors. <sighs> but I do. I watch these programs all the time, and I'm aware of them because, as I said, I want to know what they're thinking. They seldom say these words. They just won't do it. They don't say Jesus Christ. In fact, I want to go in front of them and say Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, over and over and over again. It makes them cringe. And you know it makes them cringe because they think what in their huge churches? They think it's offensive. They're right about that. They just don't understand why. They seldom say the word Christ. They always say God, 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 God. I never hear them say Christ at all. It's like there's some kind of tongue infringement. You've heard me say this before. It is the name of Christ and the name of Christ alone that saves people. That's it. That's all that works. Nothing else works. Eternal life is given to those who believe in the name of Christ Jesus. 1 John 3.13, if you don't say his name, what are you doing as a church? Why won't you say it? What's stopping you? So why do they eliminate his name? Again, they seek to be Christless. Ask why. Watch them. Watch the TV shows. Count how many times the name of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, is spoken. Count the number of times Jesus Christ is Proclaimed to be the Lord God Almighty, the I Am, the Ancient of Days, the Invisible made visible, God Himself, Creator God. Ask yourself, how many times do they say it? You will not need your phone. Or your toes. Or your right hand. Probably your left hand either. They just do not do it. They will not declare Christ to be who He says He is. Welcome to Revelation 3.16. And that conveniently, because I'm so good at lesson plans, that's a joke. This is the very subject of Revelation 7 through 11, where we are. I alluded to this last Sunday. The purpose of the seven seals, which is somewhat on the board here, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, the three woes, the 144,000, the two witnesses, The whole purpose of that is to bring the saving name of Jesus Christ to the world, to shout his name. That's what he's doing. He's not saying anything but his name over and over and over again to as many people who can hear it. That's the plan, because that's what saves us. His very name itself, as you all know, means salvation, uh, Proverbs 30, right? 
The mystery of Proverbs 30, verse 4. He is named salvation. He's the embodiment of salvation. He's the only salvation. If you can't say His name, you won't say His name. Whose side are you on? Okay, I'm ranting now, aren't I? I kind of said I would. But this is the problem of Laodicea. And that's why we, you, especially to your kids, your grandchildren, say his name all the time. Never miss a day. I get told this all uh, often. You never let a sermon go by, a lecture go by, where you do not say, uh, they, they, I've lost about five pounds, so they don't call me. I can't even remember what they don't call me anymore. Pretty bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. I do. I have a cataract, so I'm now qualifying. But the point of it is, is they say you never let a lecture go by where you do not say Jesus Christ is God himself. Fully, infinite, totally, always God. Never, ever, not God. At no time ever in his he doesn't have uh, he doesn't have time. He's outside of time. But he is never not God. I do it every lecture. Why? Because you don't hear it, and you know you don't hear it. It's offensive. Yes, it is. It's exclusionary. Yes, it is. It's the truth, and it is the only thing that will save you. And if I truly care about the people that come to uh, Cliffside, both of you. Okay, there's there's three of you today, or four. Uh, if I truly care, I'm going to say that every time. I'm not going to be standing in front of that throne saying, I was afraid to say your name. And that's exactly the reason the world seeks to eliminate him. And the church has eagerly followed suit Last week, I spent considerable time listing without placing any of the pieces. So I listed a bunch of pieces, lots of listing. There's some of it on the board. And I didn't put any of the pieces into the proper positioning. So we're going to do that today, a little bit of it today. So let me take the magic, reversible, holy dry erase board and flip it over. Because I have prepared in between trying to play the banjo and race the other side. So, we are looking at the first quarter and the second quarter of the first half of the tribulation. If that makes any sense to you, welcome to Clipsa. So, here's the end of the first quarter right here. So, that would be the first half of the first half of the tribulation. Again, if that makes sense, yay. And here is the second half. And here is the Messianic age. And right here is the 75-day interval. Or the blessing of the 1335th day. Right here is the abduction of the bride. Now, there is a... I'm sorry, wrong place. I put that in the wrong place. That's not here. It's a mistake. Over here is the abduction of the bride. Now, there is a midpoint between the first quarter and the second quarter of the first half of the tribulation. There's a midpoint in the, oh gosh, I really messed up today. That's not the Messianic age. That is the second half of the tribulation. Messianic age is over here. This has two quarters in it as well. Hopefully that's starting to make some sense. But I have midpoints. I have midpoints between the first quarter and the second quarter. I have a midpoint between the, or mid, I'm sorry, I have a midpoint between each quarter. 
I have a midpoint between the both quarters. I have a midpoint between, it's not the 75-day interval either. That's at the end before the Messianic age. I have a midpoint right here. So I have all of these points with regard to how the tribulation is. In other words, let me put it this way. The tribulation is broken into four quarters. Two halves and, and two halves and those two halves. Does that make sense? Wow. It's broken into four quarters. Things happen in each half of each quarter. Things happen in each quarter. Things happen in each half of the whole seven. Understanding how they all fit is a very important thing. And we're going to make an incomplete list as always because it's impossible to make a complete list. And just, But we're going to focus today on just those things that occur in the second half of the first half of the tribulation. Or if you prefer, the second first quarter or the second one quarter as opposed to the first half of the first half or the first one quarter. How many of you understood any of that? Yay! My methodology is a success. I'm going to keep doing this to you until you begin to partition out this tribulational period and start to understand that I got to, or you have to, I too, have to figure out what's in each quadrant. Okay. The seven trumpets are inside of the second half of the first half. Does that make sense? Yes. They're inside of the second half of the first half. This is where the seven trumpets are. Except you might be able to argue that the seventh trumpet starts, or some people put the seventh trumpet inside the second half of the tribulation completely, because it is where the seven bowls are. The seventh trumpet has the seven bowls. So you can make that distinction if you wish. Most people will put all seven trumpets in the first half and the bowls in the second half. The second half of the tribulation, do you know what it's called? It's distinctive. The tribulation is in two, is in four pieces, two halves that have two halves. First half of the tribulation is really bad. Second half of the tribulation is unbelievably bad. Bad for who is the, is the question. There is an intensity in this three and a half years that is not here in this three and a half years. Why? Why isn't there the same intensity? God raises, if you will, the pressure What's he trying to do? Okay, the seven trumpets are inside the second half of the first half. The first trumpet, one-third of the trees gone. One-third, trees, grass, burned. First trumpet. Now, I asked you last week, why one-third? What's the point of that? The second trumpet, a great mountain, something like a great mountain, burning with fire, is thrown into the sea, and one-third of the oceans, blood, creatures dead. Repeat the question. Why only one-third? Why not one-fourth? Why not one-eighth? Why not one-seventh? Why not one-half? Why not three-quarters? Don't we love fractions and ratios? But we have this one-third of the water becomes blood. Now, what should that remind you of? Water becoming blood is what? Where are you going to go to get information on why one-third of the oceans is turned to blood? Why we have all this death in the sea? Where else do I have water becoming blood? And you all scream out, Exodus 6, right? So clearly, I have a relationship between the first plague, that's correct, Moses, the first plague and the second trumpet. Now, why? 
And we're going to need to investigate that. And I would suggest that there are no coincidences. I won't suggest. I will submit. I won't submit. I will declare that there are no coincidences in God's word. He's omniscient. 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 Can't speak. He's omniscient. And omniscience eliminates accidentalism or accidentalness. Duh. For today, I just want you to begin to pay attention to this one-third, this reoccurrence of this one-third theme. Now, the third trumpet, a great star fell. And when stars fall, stars have a symbolism that many, many times is transferred or is meant for an angelic being. A great star fell. You have to decide if this third trumpet is talking about a being. It has a name, Wormwood. A great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers. So now I have a third of the rivers and the springs so uh, poisoned. So, so far, here's what's happened with the trumpets. One-third of the vegetation burned. One-third of the ocean blood and death in it. One-third of the rivers, the fresh water and the springs poisoned. <coughs> and, the, and the name of this great star that fell is Wormwood. The fourth trumpet, I have one-third, getting the picture, of all light is affected. One-third of the light, of particle light is removed as opposed to primable light. You can't remove primable light, that is God himself. At this point now, after the fourth trumpet, I have the three woes are declared. Woe, woe, woe. Your boat. Gently down the stream. Life is but a dream. But I have three woes. Why not four woes? Why not five woes? Why not seven woes? Same question. Again, omniscience forbids all but three. Three woes must be three woes. Cannot be anything but three woes. Why? Okay, that's how we began or how we ended last week. And so now let's try to pick some of this apart. Let's uh, start all of this today at Revelation 12, 3 through 4. I'm going to try to answer uh, your three woe question. Uh, or your one third question all at the same time. Now, last week, during the buffet portion of the uh, service, I had somebody tell me the answer. I was so thrilled. What's your name? That's right, Felicia. For all of you on the Internet, Felicia said, I think I've solved this. And she was absolutely right. And I jumped up and ran around in circles like an idiot. So I'm very proud of her for figuring this out. But let's see if I can add more to it than maybe she considered. So let's read Revelation 12, 3 through 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, this is a behold. When God says, behold, you stop and you know something incredible is about to be given to you doctrinally. A great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child. As soon as it was born, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So there's your answer to why one-third. My, my, my. One-third. You should, you should, whenever you're confronted with something, try to find out where it first happens. By that I mean you should consider the first time one-third is a one-third. The first one-third, by the first one-third, I mean, again, when did this happen chronologically? Not just scripturally, but chronologically. And I submit that now we're going to end up in Daniel 8.10. So let's go to Daniel 8.10. Your first clue is Revelation 12.7. And now Daniel. 
Daniel's a little confusing here for some. They think this is Antiochus Epiphany. Most of your commentaries will say that, but we'll we'll throw some Christology into that. And it grew up to the host of heaven. Talk to, well, it's back up to nine. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. That's Israel, Jerusalem. And it grew up to the host of heavens, and it cast down some of the host and, and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Some think, again, that's Antiochus Epiphanes when he came and uh, uh, slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies on the altar. Can't, I don't have time to do that today, but just recognize that there is a similarity between Daniel 8.10 and Revelation 12.3 and 4. Certainly Daniel 8.10 must be attached somehow to Revelation 12.3 and 4. But for now, I'm proposing that the sweeping up of one-third of the angelic realm, the abundance of the traffic from Ezekiel, that was the first one-third. In other words, does that make sense? Trying to solve why one-third of the trees, one-third of the ocean, one-third of the rivers, one-third of the light. And I'm telling you, it has something to do with Satan getting one-third of the angelic host. Because that's what happened first, chronologically, in these events. Way before Revelation, the tribulation occurs, and these things come. Way before the four trumpets that did this, or that caused this, I have the taking of one-third of the angelic host. I have the taking of the one-third of the angelic host before the fall of Adam. That is what these one-thirds are referencing. Find the first one-third. So what's it mean? If my submittal is valid, then God, by burning one-third of the grass and trees, and one-third of the sea turned to blood. One-third of the creatures in the sea dead. One-third of the ships. There's another one-third for you. He destroys one-third of the ships. Ships? What's that about? What significance does ships have? One-third of the rivers and the springs poisoned. One-third of the stars are turned dark. It's clear that God is sending a loud and unmistakable message to somebody with this one-third. Is it the human beings? How many angels fell? One-third. How much grass burned? One-third. Who knows what the one-third's about? The angels know. They're not stupid. They can count. They know what's going on. Remember Revelation 9.15. Let's go back now to Revelation. The first woe and the second woe is in Revelation 9. We've covered Revelation 9 already a little bit, uh, but we have a long way to go. Let's just talk about what's happening in Revelation 9. Let me read it again. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key of the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, and they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, man cannot die. Man will seek death and will not find it. He will desire to die, and death will flee from them. Man can't die. Five months, no death. That's the first woe. Second woe. Sixth trumpet is the second woe. First, fifth trumpet is the first woe. So the four angels who had been 
Oh, God's saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, this is not the Euphrates of today. This is the pre-flood Euphrates. So somehow we have this binding of angelic beings in the pre-flood Euphrates area. The pre-flood Euphrates, of course, was not just above ground, but it was subterranean. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. There's another third. These angels aren't just tormenting. They come and they have the power to kill one-third of mankind. And it describes them, and we'll read more of that in a minute. All of that to say, one-third of mankind will be killed by those who rise up from the confinement before the, that was underneath, that is underneath the pre-flood Euphrates River. And it is impossible for the one-third of the angels who chose to reject their creator to not be aware of the repeating here of the one-third. If I'm a fallen angel and I see one-third, then it's pretty obvious to me that God is telling me something. Not just once, over and over and over and over again. He's beating them with it, isn't he? And there's descriptions of these, these beings that come up from these two prison areas. These two, one's the abyss and one is this area under the Euphrates. They're not attractive. I've asked you before, would God, did God make them killing machines? Because that's what they are. Or did they make themselves killing machines? How did they get like they are? God makes only good. Clear and obvious Genesis 1. How did they get like this? Where did they come from? Who are they? Why were they imprisoned? When were they imprisoned? Why are they released? Who gave the key? Who has the key? Christ has the key. Why does he give the key? He has all the keys. And it's obvious that he has to be the one that tells them, You can attack, but you can't kill. For five months, no physical death ever for anybody. We've discussed that at length. We have a long way to go on that subject. Those of you on the Internet, it's somewhere in lecture one, two, three, or four, whatever we're in. It's in there. It's impossible for the one-third of the angels who choose, who chose to reject their creator and fall to not be aware of the repeating of the one-three, or the one-third. It's not happenstance. Omniscience precludes happenstance. Look at what he does. He darkens. I'm not going in order. He poisons. He burns. One-third are destroyed. Ships. One-third are dead sea creatures. Destroyed, dead, burns, poisoned, darkened. What's the sermon about? Mankind at this time may also recognize the pattern and realize their inclusion, the application to them, but the, uh, to us, if you will. We're not there. But uh, we don't fit mathematically. Humankind does not fit mathematically into the one-third theme. The one-third of the angels who choose condemnation would know. They know why this repeating of the one-third is being done. And obviously we're going to need to disentangle the complexity that is in this one-third symbolism. I thought at least today I'd get you started. I think you can figure it out now. Pack the ubiquitous lunch, though. Okay, now let's take a a run at the woes, the three woes. Or let's take a run at woe number three. We'll read woe number two here in a second so you're familiar with it again. The first woe, let me start backwards. The trumpet, the seventh trumpet that contains seven bowls is the third woe. The first woe is the creatures from the abyss. That could only torment for five months, killed nobody, and nobody could die by any means. That's incredible, as you know. Think about that condition. Imagine if you're in it. Imagine what people are thinking that when no one can die for five months 
What else cannot die? How about animals? Can animals die? If you can't die, let's just consider something. What if you are in the desert and you have no water? Can you die? It says no. What if you have nothing to eat? Can you die? No. Nothing can die for five months. Why is Christ doing that? And we talked about why. I'm repeating it for the sake that it demands repeating. It's so important. Christ has removed death and brought at the same time, simultaneously, this tremendous suffering, but no death. That's a five-month picture of the lake of fire put on display. In case you wonder what's going to happen, this is going to happen. How do people respond to not being able to die for five months in a tormented, sinful state? Let's, let's assume that you're one of the ones in this condition. You're there. You are not going to die for five months. You don't get stung. You have no issues at all, except for what? Your own sinfulness. Consider that. So the first woe is the creatures from the abyss. They have a king that's named the destroyer and the adjournment of physical death for five months. That's the first woe, the first attacking. The second woe is more formidable. It's a more formidable force, I should say, from the Euphrates prison. The the creatures are far more deadly. They bring death to one-third of mankind. They have no prohibition in killing. And we have 13 months of all-out warfare, and they're led by four angels and not just the one. So I have two groups. They come out and attack humanity. The first and the second woe are terrifying. It's exceedingly great terror. But the third woe stands absolutely alone. It's the woe of woes. And it is Revelation 11.11. So let's get that into the record. Well, well, actually, let's start at 11.7. When they, and it's talking about the two witnesses, finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, Jerusalem, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord God, our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Why did God send two prophets to torment people on the earth? What's the answer? The answer is always, why did Christ send two prophets to torment people on the earth? Because Christ's name is salvation. He's doing it to save them. Why is this necessary? Why not just, you know, put a sign up there that says, Be saved, Jesus. There's something wrong, isn't there? I said last week, this is extraordinary. It seems like it's well beyond what's necessary. But that can't be because omniscience says otherwise, doesn't it? This is exactly what's necessary, and he's trying to save them. How did they respond to the people coming to save them? They rejoice over their death, don't they? Now we're reading the third war. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. Their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Oh, that's interesting. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. What is he saying? And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. That's the, if you will, that's the end of the second woe. Now, here comes the seventh angel. Did I say that was the third woe? Did anybody hear me say that? Okay, then I... I read the end of the second woe so that I could get to the third woe to give you the context. 
So, disregard everything I've said to this point. I'm old. Look at me. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices. And when I make a mistake like that, and you know that I've made the mistake, somebody stand up and throw something at me so that I can fix it immediately. I will not throw it back. Okay, I will throw it back. I still have some pretty good techniques, as you know. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you've taken your great power and reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. What are they calling? What are the angels calling Christ? God. Christ is God. Never make the mistake and say he's not. Never. Blasphemy. Heresy. Doom. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple and there were lightning, noises, thunders, and earthquake and great hail. That is the seventh trumpet. That is the great woe. Now remember, there's seven bowls inside this trumpet. But it tells you two things that are a great woe. One, Christ is going to take over the kingdoms of the earth, or the kingdom of the earth. The word is singular there. Your Bible might not say so. And the temple and the ark. Thank you. There's the, the ark of the covenant was seen. That's amazing. Why is that a woe? The difficulties with respect to the book of Revelation are manifold, as you know. But if there's an understanding of the placement and the purposes of chapters 10 through 14, then things get a little bit easier. Easy is an overstatement. It's not going to be easy, but easier. Revelation is never unchallenging. It's a burden. The demand that is required by the book of Revelation is lessened a little bit if you know that chapters 10 and 14 through 14 are parenthetic. They're an interlude. So I have all this stuff, and then I have a pause, if you will. And most readers of Revelation chapters 10 through 14 might sense that this is a discontinued. I mean, there's a discontinuity to it. I barely said that word. In other words, it just doesn't seem to flow anymore. And they seldom, though, ask why this is the case. Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum had a big impact on me. He calls this section um, the mid-tribulational announcements. Why is this seventh woe, I'm sorry, this third woe, this seventh trumpet, why is this, this announcement period? And he's correct. That's exactly the point. God is announcing things. He's presenting the facts of the case. Two woes have come and gone. Two of the woe judgments have passed. Now there's this prelude to the third woe judgment. To repeat, the first woe judgment, five months, no physical death, and an unleashing of this abyss contingent. That attacks. That's a woe. Attack, no death. Woe. Incredible. The second woe judgment, another wave of evil from the Euphrates prison, and one-third of humanity is slain. And again, the response is important. Let's read the response. Revelation 9, 18 through 21. First, it describes what they are, these creatures, in verse 17. Don't have time to read it. I just got my signal. I'm out of time. But read that. They're amazingly evil, killing machines. How did they get like that? Did God make them answer no? Now, verse 18. By these three, a third of mankind was killed. 
we go again. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. So, these things, if you will, come out. They're released by order of Christ. Why does he do this? A third of mankind is killed. Last Sunday, I asked a bunch of questions about this. Let's do it again. They are given conditions that they agree to. Abaddon has a force. And the condition is, you can't touch the 144,000. You can only attack the unsealed, and you can't kill them, and you get a five-month duration. And he agrees to that. The second group, they have no restriction on killing. They're allowed to attack. I made the case. Why did the first group agree to those conditions? They can't kill anybody, but can they be killed, I asked. Can they be disembodied from these creatures that they are inhabiting? The second group, I asked the same question. They're killing a third. How many of them are there? There's 200 million. They are vastly outnumbered by humanity. Even a third of humanity at the time of the tribulation, let's assume that we continue to grow um, in spite of the best efforts of people that like to Profit off of, uh, never mind. We're growing as a human, human, as humanity, we're multiplying. We have multiplication capability. The angelic host does not. They have 200 million killing machines. Even a third of humanity is a couple of billion maybe at the time of this. Could be three billion. This isn't a fair fight. Humanity overwhelmingly outnumbers them. They're all going to be killed if they can be killed, yet they still attack. What makes them do that? But here's the most intriguing aspect of it, all of that to get to just here. This is the whole point of today's lecture. By these three plagues, or these three plagues isn't in there, a third of mine, if you see something in italics, it's not in the text. By these three, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents, so they got a head of a serpent that can kill you, and then they have a, a, a fire and breathing head that can kill you. And then with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues, or by these creatures, if you will, by these, this all-out total war, I have a third of mankind that are killed. How much mankind do I have less? Do the math. Two-thirds. I'll help you. Two-thirds are left. The rest of mankind, the two-thirds that are left, who were not killed by these, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, brass, stone, silver, and wood, which they can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or their drugs. That word is Greek for pharmaceutical. Or their drugs or their sexual immorality or their thefts. That makes no sense. I hope you see that, and that means there's a great treasure there for you. How can this be so? How can mankind that survives worship the ones that are killing them? Because that's what it says they do. What kind of condition are these people in? They're being attacked by an army of of things, for lack of a better term, that wish to exterminate all of mankind. They're not killed. But they worship us so. Worship demons. Something's not right. Who are the two-thirds that worship demons and who still make idols after witnessing these hordes coming forth? The second woe judgment is 18 months of incredible, all-out total warfare, and mankind ends up worshiping idols of wood. What explains that? They make idols of wood. Who do you think they made the idols of? What did they form? They made idols of, of silver, gold, and they worshiped demons. What are their idols made of? Two-thirds make idols. And they take drugs, and they're a mess, and they're murdering each other. After all of that, what explains this reaction? How does this comport with the information that precedes it? What's the thought process? Again, the obvious question from last week. 
Who are the one-third that got killed? Do you assume it's arbitrary? I got two-thirds that didn't get killed. Did not repent. I got one-third that got killed. Who's the one-third? What I mean by all of this is the survivors did not repent. They worshipped the demons. So who fought the demons? Somebody had to fight the demons because, I mean, they're just going to be killed. I made the comment last week. If, if I'm in this fight, I'm one of the most heavily armed people in it. And I'm fighting. They're coming to kill me, that's for sure. And I know it. I'm fighting. Now, we won't be here. We're in the church. We get abducted before the tribulational period. Taking of the bride is a very important aspect of all of this. God, Christ, takes his bride away for, for a specific reason. We'll get to that in just a second. But who fought these demons? Who were targeted by these legions of evil beings? Five months of no physical death is followed by 13 months of total war. Who fought? Who did not repent of their murders or drugs? That's my question. Who were the ones that fought? Who were the ones that did not repent? And that is the ending of the second woe judgment. And there is no repentance there. Now we have a pause. This parenthetical time that transpires. And God has something to say. He's making announcements as it relates to this seemingly inexplicable mess. Uh, This warfare happened and no repentance. Zero repentance. In case you want to know how many people repented of the two-thirds that survived, doesn't seem like very many. So what's he do next? Third woe. Mankind is drenched in madness, insanity, but God will not relent. Jesus Christ will do what is required to turn the continually evil people that inhabit the earth, the two-thirds that are left, he's going to try to do what with them? He's going to try to save as many of them who will come. That's his plan. He's going to break the stubborn will of the stiff-necked people. Normally, when we say stiff-necked, we're referring to Israel. But I'm looking at these guys. How do you get more stubborn than that? Remember the purposes of the tribulation. To save all who will come. That's the number one purpose of the tribulation. So you always look for salvation when you see any of this. People who come to me and say, well, the the tribulation is about judgment. Well, that's true, but it's about salvation. Number one thing is to save all who will come. Worldwide revival. Number two is to turn the nation of Israel to the truth of Christ, that he is the true God. He is the God of creation. Jesus Christ is the I Am. He's the King of Israel. He's the King of the world. He's taking the kingdom that is here. He is the Messiah. Number third reason is to end the wickedness of the wicked ones. So there are three components, but do not disregard the salvation component. That's what Christ is doing. He's going to make them repent. Not make them. He's going to, he's going to lead them to salvation. It's going to reach his hand towards them. Revelation chapter 9 is marinated in those three intentions. Salvation, turn Israel, in the wickedness, in the madness. Notice that two of the three are salvation. One third is condemnation. Okay, anyway, so. Half time has come. Period of rest calm. That's chapters 10 through 14. Up to this point, the two witnesses have been active. The 144,000 active. The Antichrist is consolidating his power. The false prophet is available and out there. After all of this comes the third woe judgment, the seven bowls. And the two witnesses are going to be killed by the Antichrist, and he will begin to institute his mark. And Jesus Christ, at this point, will issue a final call to come to salvation. This is the last call. And Satan is thrown out of heaven at this time. And the great tribulation, the worst of the tribulation, begins. 
The killing of the two witnesses by the Satan-Antichrist combo, if you will, is a key component to all of this. The two witnesses prophesied for 1,260 days, three and a half years, so the entire first half. We're talking about the midpoint of the tribulation right now. This is where those two witnesses are killed, and they lie dead. And fire came from the mouths of the two witnesses. They shut off rain. They strike the earth. They are extraordinarily powerful. The two-thirds that were not killed by the second woe attack hate these two witnesses, they loathe them, they despise them. Hate isn't, I can't even come up with a strong enough name for what the two-thirds think of the two witnesses. And when the two witnesses are somehow killed, the world rejoices. They make merry. Why would they do that? They are thrilled at these two witnesses. What are these men doing? What is their purpose? Why have they been sent? It is to save these very ones that hate them. God tries to save the people that hate Him. He's unceasing. And when these, these prophets of Christ are slain, the world rejoices. Happy Dead Witnesses Day. What did the deaths of the prophet of Jesus Christ prove to the two-thirds that survived the second woe? When these two guys are killed, what did the world, the two-thirds that survived the second woe, what did they think? But here's an important aspect. Note to world. Christ resurrected them. How did he do it? What did it say? What did he use? His breath. There's a doctrinal truth. Resurrection requires God to use his breath. I made the point previously that they were mutilated. They were laid out there and decomposed, but they were also cut to pieces. This isn't happening at your typical healing crusade. This is obviously dead people, two witnesses. God reassembles them, puts his breath, puts their soul spirit back into their body and pulls them up. Those who hate them, obviously those who see this, are going to take the mark. I mean, what more do you want? You're looking for signs and wonders? Here you got some. They take the mark. They rejoice, or they were rejoicing at the mistaken prospect that God's prophets could be killed. And then very briefly, they have this delusion a very small amount of time that sin will not be overcome by God. They get to stay in sin. But God changes them. Christ says no. They think that Christ will not end the reign of evil. And then the two witnesses are raised. That is one of the big rut rows in all of Scripture. Here's the interesting part of that. He raises his two witnesses. What did the people of the world expect the two witnesses to do? Go right back to what they were doing. But he doesn't do that. What does he do instead? He ends their ministry. What's their ministry? Save as many, get as many people to turn to Christ as they possibly can. Three and a half years. Now they're removed. They're out of service, if you will. Job's over. Is that good news? The world now doesn't have two prophets. They don't continue. They're taken. Ask why. Why not stay? And then finally for today, the favorite word of Cliffside is finally. The real Ark of the Covenant is revealed to the Apostle John. Notice how I said that. That's not Moses' copy. That's the real one. Moses made a copy of this one. Did you think it was just arbitrary? No, there's a real Ark of the Covenant. It's in heaven. There's a real temple. Moses makes a tent. Solomon builds a temple. Those are copies. Hebrews makes that obvious. There's a true Ark. There's a real temple. Next week, we'll make a nice, clean... Okay, we won't. We won't do that. Next week, we'll grab all of these things 
put them in this beautiful listing, and you will know everything there is to know. Okay, none of that's true either. You will fight. Let me read this. Let me read this one more time. I forgot. I didn't read this for the for the internet. Let me do it here, right here. Twenty-five years. Joseph Parker said this. Uh, great preacher in the 1800s. 25 years and I have not begun my exposition. 25 years and I'm still at Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. I have preached from the Bible, every text in the Bible, and I have not yet begun to preach at all. Welcome to Bible study. You're not even close to being started. You're still at Revelation 1.1. I've skipped a lot of stuff, but I could have stayed there. Do I have to banjo? Okay, I need to know. It's an onerous task. Which one do I have to do? Do I have to do the easy one or the hard one? I don't like the hard one. I don't either. Do you want them to stand? They have to stand in order to be saved. You know that, right? Okay. <laughs>